I'd like to introduce our storyteller for the day, Carol Lotus. She's uh, more famously known uh, as Ken's wife, missionary in Brazil. Uh, but those who know her know her also to be uh, really wise and thoughtful and humble. And she has a wonderful story to share with us. And I had to work really hard to get her to say yes. So please enjoy Carol Lotus's story. Actually, I think I'm better known as Ken Lotus's mother than as Ken Lotus's. <laughs> it's a privilege. And I got two sons here today. So um, I have to stop and take a breath. I think about how many of you knew who um, Mark Hatfield was? a senator from Oregon, and I heard his wife speak one time, and she got up to the microphone, kicked off her shoes, stood back, and said, we're going to do this on a wing and a prayer. I'm going to wing it, and you're going to pray. <laughs> That's kind of where Carol is this morning. I'll wing it, and you pray. Uh, the objective I have this morning is merely to share with you what happened, what can happen if you say yes to God. And uh, so in doing that, I'm going to go back to a verse that has been given to me that I've been repeating over and over this week, and I don't even have notes, so pray for me. Um, at the beginning of the year, Psalm 66:16 just kind of got into my heart. And it is, come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for me. For I called out to him for help, praising him as I spoke. And he answered me. And so that's kind of part of this business up here is to tell what he's done for us. But I'm going to go way, way back. I've lived a long time, and I've got a lot of stories. So I'm going to way back to the bottom of the barrel. I'm going to tell you a story that happened when I was just, just about to turn 10 years old. And I had my first experience at a summer camp, a Bible camp. It was out in the woods in Wisconsin. It was, uh, uh, took place in a Boy Scout camp. All we had were tents. Uh, army cots, a single cold water faucet out in the woods, and an outhouse. And that's the way we camped with our bedroll. And every morning it was the usual routine, uh, walking, hiking into the mess hall, having some Bible studies and craft shops and maybe something about um, the outdoors. And then in the afternoon it was fun and games. In the evening it was always a message that was teaching us about Jesus and and inviting us to take him into our heart and to accept him as our personal savior. Well, I had grown up in a Christian home, and the whole idea of accepting Jesus seemed ridiculous to me because Jesus was part of my family. I didn't have to accept mom, and I didn't have to accept dad, so why did I have to accept Jesus? He just was there. He was part of it. But my friends kept encouraging me, Carol, you have to go up and kneel down and say the prayer. So finally I did. I went up and I knelt down and I said the sinner's prayer and I prayed and I went back to my, my cot in my tent and I felt terrible. I said, Jesus, that was all just a big farce. You know my heart and I did it just to please everybody else and I'm sorry. Well, later on that week, on the last night of camp, they had what they called a, I was going to say commitment service. I don't think it was commitment because we weren't committing anybody to anything. Anyway, 
Um, but we had a service with a huge bonfire down by our swimming pond, swimming um, pole. And we were supposed to take a, a stick off a pile of sticks. And if we wanted to burn out for Jesus and give our lives to him, we could take that stick and throw it on the bonfire. And at that moment, I felt so embraced and loved and cared for. It's like, I'm going to cry. It's like the Lord would say, honey, I forgive you. What you did was okay. The, the good thing is that I want you. And I want you just for me. And I just, I took that stick and put it on there. And I said with all my heart, if ever you need me for anything, I'm available. And that was my 10-year-old prayer, my 10-year-old yes. And it stuck with me. Well, let's jump forward about 17 years. I was 27 years old, married to Ken. We had two little boys. They're sitting around with their, their big boys now. And, and I had one more baby boy in my tummy. And Ken and I were invited to be the pioneers in a brand new ministry in Brazil. I had my degree in music education. And I thought, do they really want to send me as a you know, pioneer mission, uh, a missionary to Brazil? And when <laughs> I think about this, I'm so embarrassed, but when they asked Ken and I how we felt about going to Brazil, I thought, I cannot lie, I've got to be truthful. So I said to these men on staff, well, I never felt called to the dying millions, but if God needs me, I'm available. <laughs> now that's not the right answer, but they took me anyway. <laughs> so Ken and I had these wonderful, wonderful 22 years and five months in Brazil. Raised our boys there. I gained a, mar you guys know, I gained a marvelous daughter-in-law to that deal. <laughs> Sitting right over there, my Karen. And I look back at that kid's prayer of saying yes to God. And it stuck with me. It wasn't a big deal, but it was there. It was deep in my heart. It was a vow a little girl took. God took me up on it. And he gave me this incredible privilege and life. And I got to be part of his team and do something extraordinary. And I look back and I say, how did he take that little girl from a little town back in Minnesota and hold her to her promise and give her the life that she's had. So that's why it's wise to say yes to God. Okay, oh, I forgot the first paragraph. Oh well. <laughs> I'm supposed to smile and wait four seconds, you know. I'm going to read the scripture now. I think that's the next thing in the, on, on the list here. So if you have it, you can look to the screen or pick up your Bibles or your iPads or whatever you have and read along with me from uh, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 in the New International Version. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? 
It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he, was, he used to help himself to what he put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The word of the Lord. I want to introduce our speaker for the day. Uh, her name is Debbie Monzingo, and I'm going to just read a bio uh, that she wrote. I think it sums it up really well. The Holy Spirit, having drawn me into a surprising and grace-filled midlife course correction, I received an MDiv from Fuller Seminary in 2013 after a career as an English teacher. After serving for two years as the associate pastor of a new covenant church, a multi-ethnic church plant in Seattle, I am now tribal vocational. I serve as the confirmation pastor at Shoreline Covenant, the junior high chaplain and Bible teacher at Bellevue Christian School, and as an itinerant preacher to a number of regional covenant and non-covenant churches. She ends with, my life is full. Now a couple of fun facts about her. And uh, we'll forgive her for this. She doesn't like coffee, you guys. So we're already suspicious of you, Debbie. And more than anything else, she loves to dance. And uh, maybe we'll get to see a little today. I don't know. She plays the ukulele badly. And she's kind of a polymath, interested in learning about everything. So Debbie, come on up and uh, share God's word with us. Thank you for inviting me to be here. There's nothing I would rather do of all my interests. There's nothing I'd rather do than open the Word of God with the people of God. So thank you for being here and for sharing in this uh, worship celebration with us today. Uh, I have been, in preparation for today, I've been sort of cyber-stalking you. Uh, I've been listening to sermons and the storytelling online, and I so appreciate uh, the way you invite each other into each other's stories. Uh, you know, God made us to learn by story. That is how we are built. It's like, you know, you can explain the math problem, but if you don't exactly ever have anything to apply that math problem to, it's just abstract and it doesn't mean anything. It's just numbers and, and we eventually lose it. Um, so the stories, the real life things, are what draw us into the truth of God. And so it makes sense maybe that I started my life as a, uh, my career life as an English teacher, uh, and that seemed to naturally segue into my life as a preacher and a pastor and uh, continuing as a Bible teacher. So I, because I began my career life as an English teacher, I have some training in how to understand characters in literature. And when we study the Gospels, we always want to study Jesus most of all, of course, because this is the character we must know if we claim to be his disciples. And even if you don't claim to be a disciple of Jesus, if you're not a Christian or you're not sure where you, where you stand on this journey towards truth, the only way you can figure out what this Christian life is, this church thing that we do together, this life of faith that you see giving shape and meaning and purpose to our lives is to learn Jesus, not just about Jesus, but Jesus himself. 
In literature, when you're doing a, a character analysis of a main character, well, of course we look at the obvious things, like what the character does and says and the way he acts and, and uh, the, what he looks like and what he wears. And, and as much as possible, when we're given that information, we pay attention to that. Uh, but there's more than that, too. We also look at the characters who interact with the main character. We look at how they talk to that character and how they talk about that character and how they act in his presence. And is that the same as how they act outside of his presence and what they say about that character out of his hearing? Uh, we're going to do that today. In this gospel record of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus, five characters are mentioned by name, and I think we can learn something about Jesus from each of these characters. And we're going to be going back into previous chapters in John a little bit, so if you've already studied some of these, forgive me, but review is always a good thing. Teachers believe in review, so I'm going to go there with you today. So let's begin with Lazarus. In the chapter before this, in chapter 11 of John, um, you might remember that Lazarus had died, and he had really died. He was not in a coma. He had been in the tomb for four days, so he was good and dead. And then Jesus raised him from the dead. And what we learn about Jesus might seem pretty obvious, but I think it's worth remembering. He has power over death. This event also makes Lazarus a public figure. He's the now the guy who, raised from the, who was raised from the dead after being dead for four days. So um, people flocked to Bethany where he was because Lazarus was there and Jesus was there. Some people came because they wanted to see this miracle guy. They wanted to see Lazarus being alive. Is he really alive after being dead? And some wanted to meet the Jesus guy who made that possible but that people were flocking to Bethany. And uh, G Jesus was just there to have some dinner with his friends, but other people were coming to the town. The chief priests were also coming to Bethany because they saw Jesus as a threat because people started following Jesus because of this Lazarus event instead of them. So they wanted to kill both of them. That was their solution. Let's get rid of both of them. Lazarus was a living, walking, breathing testimony. Just by being alive, he was a testimony to Jesus' love and power. And the priests needed to eliminate that testimony and the subject of that testimony to retain their own power. So we also learn that Jesus is willing to upset that apple cart and cause trouble. He did not go along with the religious leaders of the day for the sake of unity. For the sake of unity, he would not give up his mission. He insisted on causing trouble, even though the church people wanted him not to. Mary and Martha are both there too. Mary and Martha are the sisters of Lazarus, and Jesus calls all three of them his friends. There aren't very many people in Scripture who are called his friends, but these three are. We presume this meal happened at their house because Mary was serving the meal. Now, you remember, maybe, maybe you remember if you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke, Martha was the one who tried to get, to get Jesus to get Mary to help her in the kitchen at another event. And Mary had been at the feet of Jesus in the position and posture of a disciple with the men listening and learning with the other disciples instead of in the kitchen with Martha. This was uncharacteristic for women at that time, not necessarily because women didn't want to be disciples, 
but only because it didn't happen. They weren't allowed. Men were really the only ones allowed and expected to sign on with a rabbi and continue their theological educations. It just wasn't done. It wasn't the cultural norm, but Mary did it anyway. Uh, let me tell you a story about a woman who may or may not be my mother. My mother loves tradition, especially Christmas tradition. There was a way to do things in our home, and that was mom's way. My father died young, and my mother continued to live by herself in a 2,000-square-foot house for many years until very recently, this summer, when she moved, finally moved into a retirement community. And in that 2,000-square-foot house, I bet about 800 square feet of it was dedicated to storing Christmas paraphernalia. <laughs> the Christmas decorations, which go up the day after Thanksgiving and stay up until Valentine's Day. <clears throat> All of them, every year. The wrapping paper and the tissue paper and the gift bags and the gift boxes and the stash of ribbons and bows and gift tags. The Christmas dishes and the Christmas stemware, the everyday Christmas dishes and the special Christmas dishes. The Christmas candy that no one ever actually eats. It's now petrified because no one ever actually eats it, but it gets put out in the Christmas dish every year. The five or six nativity sets. The turkey roaster and the special servings pieces and the good china and the family silver that only come out on major occasions of which Christmas is king. She spent all year shopping for gifts. Sometimes months after Christmas, she'd find gifts in weird places that she'd bought so early and hid so well that she forgot about them. She was not organized. She didn't have a list. This just all sort of happened organically, so things got lost and forgotten. We couldn't eat at the dining room table for days before Christmas because that was the gift wrapping station. She'd be up half the night every Christmas Eve because she was still wrapping gifts and stuffing the stockings and cooking the giblets and making pies, the things that could be done in advance. And then she'd be up early the next morning to get the turkey and the roaster and something figured out for breakfast so that when the kids and then later the grandkids woke up, we could find something to eat before we opened our gifts. And as we got older and tried to help out, she would allow us to do certain tasks, but only if we did them exactly the way she wanted us to. She could barely stand, us, stand to see us chop onions the wrong way or slice the apples thicker or thinner than she wanted them. She'd tell us exactly how much butter and milk to add to the potatoes, and if we wanted to whip them, she'd tell us to mash them by hand instead. We had to make dishes that almost no one liked, like creamed onions and turnips. Who eats that stuff? Because to her, it just wasn't Christmas dinner without it. As we got older and married and had children, we realized that none of us was enjoying Christmas very much. The only parts we actually liked were opening, opening gifts and eating. Christmas had become one long, very stressful to-do list. By Christmas Day, which my mother worked so hard to make perfect, we were all exhausted. We just wanted to take a nap. But all the things still had to be done because tradition... We wanted so much to please our mother that we kept doing all the things. But what we really wanted was just some time together, uninterrupted by our usual daily routines. Maybe Martha was a little bit like that. She wanted the meal where she was hosting Jesus to be perfect, but Mary wasn't buying into her vision of perfection. Martha expects her to be helping out with the domestic chores. Martha had complained that Mary should be doing kitchen stuff instead of disciple stuff. 
But Jesus refuses to come to Martha's aid and instead commends Mary for choosing the most important thing. So we see that Jesus includes women in the intellectual life, the life of learning and discipleship, the spiritual life, where he affirms Mary's choice. And we see that Jesus values his disciples and their choice to learn and grow in his presence and under his teaching. Of course a meal needed to be made and served, but Martha had apparently blown it all out of proportion and gotten her priorities wrong. And maybe it was even a little bit about being the perfect hostess more than it was about serving. But Martha, let's not, let's not put Martha down. Martha is a disciple too. She just does it a little differently. She was the one who ran to Jesus after Lazarus died and said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What a statement of faith. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. She's saying, I think you can still fix this. Like, I'm not really sure how, but I, 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 I think you can fix this. When Jesus told Martha that he was the resurrection and the life, she replied without hesitation, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Martha knew who Jesus was. She had been listening all along. And she teaches us through her words that Jesus is the Savior, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the one who is expected to set all things right for God's people. She believed correctly that Jesus had power over life and death. Her words were prophetic. And here in John 12, Martha is again serving this meal given in honor of Jesus, and this time Jesus does not correct her. After all, the disciple is supposed to serve the rabbi, and she does exactly that. Perhaps her understanding about what it means to serve has changed. It's no longer about being the perfect hostess, but about bringing honor and gratitude to Jesus the Messiah who has the power to raise the dead, to bring her brother from death back into life. And Mary is apparently still not helping her with the cooking. Mary, of course, is one of the characters in the story, perhaps the most important character other than Jesus. She does something extraordinary. She takes a pint of nard, an expensive perfume, and pours it on Jesus' feet in the presence of all the dinner guests and then wipes his feet with her hair. This is an image that's startling to us. But I have to jump ahead to another character here, another one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot. Judas' responsibility as a disciple was to carry the money purse for the whole group. We don't know why he was chosen for this job, but we do know from this passage that he was a thief who helped himself to the funds for his own use sometimes. And he objects to Mary's extravagance. He says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? All Judas can see is the expenditure of a lot of money. Now, if I didn't know that Jesus was a thief and didn't care about the poor at all, I might find his question compelling. I mean, we're supposed to be good stewards of the resources entrusted to us, are we not? I have a frugal streak. I hate to see things wasted. I'm a paper crafter. That's one of the things I forgot to put in my bio. I like to make things out of paper, like greeting cards and things like that. But punching and cutting shapes for my designs leaves lots of waste good, expensive, good quality paper, and that really bothers me. <clears throat> so I have a drawer that I throw all my remotely usable paper scraps in because someday I might 
need a little corner of that piece of paper to punch something out of to put on another one of my projects. I also make package bows out of old calendar pages, which is easy to do because my mom also hoards calendars. So when she moved this summer, I took a whole box of them away for her. So I, I share a little bit in my mom's uh, hoarding tendencies. Um, I make upcycled Christmas gift tags out of used Christmas cards. If I had been Mary's friend, I might have counseled her to think twice about using that expensive perfume in such an extravagant way. I mean, what would Nard actually accomplish that a little, you know, dollar store scented soap wouldn't do just as well? Right? I heard on the news this week that for a family of four to scrape by, not thrive, but scrape by in the Seattle economy, they would need to bring in at least $76,000 a year. So if this bottle of nard was worth a year's wages, it would be like lighting $76,000 in cash on fire. Mary, are you sure you want to do this? Should you maybe just use a little of it? I mean, it'll have the same effect. Save the rest for a special occasion. But thank God Mary would not have listened to me. Mary knew that this event was the special occasion. John tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and here we see Mary's great love for Jesus. Love tells her the truth about who Jesus is. And in her own way, without words, we see her declare the same thing about Jesus that Martha did earlier. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who will set all things right, the King the extravagant love she had experienced from Jesus when he raised her brother from the dead, she returns in the most extravagant way she knows how. She takes her treasured possession, her bottle of nard, and she pours out the whole thing on Jesus, a pint of perfume. She takes it upon herself to anoint Jesus as king. And indeed, in the next section of chapter 12, Jesus enters Jerusalem as a king. But unlike the anointing of the kings in the Hebrew scriptures, Mary does not anoint Jesus' head. She anoints his feet. In the culture of Jesus' lifetime, the lowliest servant washed the feet of incoming guests. When Mary washes Jesus' feet with her hair, she declares that she is the servant of Jesus. Mary serves her with her anointing, at, uh, excuse me, Mary serves Jesus with her anointing as Martha had served Jesus with her food preparation. Both of them are his servants in their own unique gifting and calling. Regardless, this is still startling. Martha's act was bold, intimate, unexpected, unexpected sensuous, and extravagant. It is bold in that she anoints Jesus in front of of all those present. She does not ask Jesus' permission to do so, and it is so noticeable as to be recorded in Scripture forever. It is intimate in that it is directed at Jesus, not at all the guests. We can imagine her kneeling at his feet, bent over, wiping the excess perfume with her own hair as if it were a towel. It is unexpected, and that as Jesus' friend, she would not be expected to act the servant in his presence, not to mention the fact that it was taboo for a man to be touched by a woman, especially in front of others. 
It is sensuous in that the perfume fills the whole house with its fragrance. And that detail is important enough to be recorded in Scripture. And in that Jesus could feel the softness of her hair on his feet. It's almost too much for us to imagine. And it is extravagant because of the expense. Mary spared nothing to honor Jesus in what seems to us a wasteful method. But Mary had experienced extravagant love, and to her, it was the completely appropriate thing to do in this moment. Jesus dignifies it, and he gives it another layer of meaning with his response to Judas. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. What? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. We learn from Mary's action and Jesus' interpretation that Jesus is preparing to die. The, the raising of Lazarus was the act that got in motion the people who would kill him. The way to claim his kingship that she has anointed him for, the way to claim his kingdom that she has anointed him for necessarily passes through the valley of the shadow of death. And she recognizes this in her anointing of him. Jesus had been trying to tell his disciples that he was going to die, and they didn't like it when he said those things. They tried to push that truth aside. They didn't want to hear it. It is clear from their reactions after Jesus was arrested, flogged, and crucified that they never really believed him. So when Jesus interprets her actions publicly as an anointing for burial, he turns her from a servant to a prophet, the one who sees the path he must travel. She declares him king and she declares his coming death. Her extravagant love for Jesus manifests as extravagant grief for what he will soon endure. Jesus was not saying that the poor should not be cared for. Rather, he affirmed his coming kingdom in which everything is turned upside down, where sickness and death will be no more, where the poor will be rich, where gold is treated like pavement, read Revelation, where humanity and creation will flourish in loving, selfless harmony, where the cosmos and all who dwell in it will finally be all that they were created to be. That's coming. The poor will be with us until Jesus returns again in the fullness of his kingdom. But in the meantime, it is right and proper to grieve extravagantly. Lord, I believe, but why is the way so brutal? Lord, I believe, but why do you have to suffer and die? Why do we suffer so much until you return? Why do we get sick? Why are our children left motherless and fatherless? Why do our cities burn to the ground? Why is healthcare so expensive? Why must racism and oppression and misogyny and mental illness and addiction seem to have so much power? Why are the poor always with us? Why do we have to die? Lord, I believe, but hurry back. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. And in the meantime, let me anoint you for your burial so that you defeat the power of sin and death and darkness and rise from the dead. In the meantime, let me anoint you as king. Let me anoint you extravagantly because of your extravagant love for us. 
and your extravagant sacrifice for us and because my extravagant grief for what must come until thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Peter asked me to preach this week, I had no idea what my week was going to hold. This week, my 90-year-old mother-in-law entered hospice. My husband has five brothers. And when they got the news, they spared no expense to be with their mother. They bought expensive last-minute plane tickets and flew in from San Diego and Thailand. They rented cars. They took days off work and canceled other plans, even other funerals and mission trips and ministry opportunities. Their wives and their children and their grandchildren gathered extravagant expense for someone who's going to die anyway. What difference is it going to make? She won't even know that we're here, right? But on Friday, surrounded by 20 or more family members, holding hands and praying and singing hymns, Eleanor Monsingo took her last breath and got her final wish to be with Jesus. Wife of Lloyd Montzingo for 69 years, mother of six, grandmother and great-grandmother to too many to count, matriarch of a large and loving family, most of whom continue to walk with Jesus. And Daryl's brother David, who is an Anglican priest, anointed her head and her hands and her feet with oil to prepare her for burial and for the kingdom of God. And we said goodbye. Extravagant love begets extravagant grief, and it's worth it. Mary anointed Jesus for burial, but she also anointed him king because she knew who Jesus was. He rose from the dead, and by doing so, he conquered the power of sin and death and darkness. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Let's pray. Father God, you spared nothing to give us your son to make possible the reconciliation and redemption of all humankind. You have given us the ministry of reconciliation. Make us ready for that task. Lord Jesus, you have loved us with an extravagant love and have raised the lowly to be your friends. Empower us to love you and our neighbor with extravagant love. Holy Spirit, you fill us, you empower us, you teach us and direct us, you comfort us in our grief over our own brokenness and the brokenness of the world as we await the fullness of your coming kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.